HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, a weekly conversation about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food, Law, and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we are broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today is a special joint broadcast with our partner show, The Farm Report, and joining me as co-host here in the studio is Aaron Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report and the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. Hi, Aaron. I would answer to Aaron Foodbanks. I was going to say. I feel like you were going there. I would answer <laughs> I to that. <laughs> um, well, um, we're really glad that we can partner on this. It's perfect for our subject today because we're going to be talking specifically about agriculture and the new faces of American agriculture. And we have an expert guest, the United States Department of Agriculture Deputy Secretary Krista Hardin. Our conversation will focus on the work of USDA to support new farmers, women, and veterans in agriculture. As the number two official with the USDA, Deputy Hardin helps lead the department alongside Secretary Vilsack. Deputy Secretary Hardin comes from a long line of Southwest Georgia farmers and has been at the USDA since 2009. And I want to welcome her to Heritage Radio Network. Hello. Thank you all for having me today. We're really glad to have this discussion with you. And I want to start with veterans, uh, since yesterday our country celebrated Veterans Day. And I know that this has been one of your priority areas, uh, both you personally and for the department. And I'd just like to hear from you, you know, really maybe just spelling that out for us a little bit. Like, what is the connection between agriculture and veterans? And why are you focusing there? Why is it a priority for USDA as opposed to other agencies? Well, thank you for that. I think it's a great place to start. Um, I think we all owe so much to our veterans, and certainly uh, on Veterans Day, we take a few minutes and think about them and thank them for their service and their commitment to our country um, um, for many years past and those who are currently serving. But here at USDA, we think about them all the time. Um, A disproportionate number of the folks who serve in our military come from rural areas, so we know them. They're our kind of natural stakeholders in many cases. Some grew up on farms and ranches or landowners themselves, but certainly from small communities. And as they leave um, service, many of them are going back 
to those communities. Um, about 200,000 um, uh, military personnel are leaving service every year. So there's a growing number of folks thinking about what's next, um, where they're going to make, how they're going to make a living, where they're going to live. And as they make those um, decisions, we're saying, hey, consider coming back to rural America and maybe farming or ranching. And they're listening. Um, there's a lot of interest um, in coming back to rural America and in participating in agriculture. We've established um, or kind of reestablished maybe a, a great relationship with the Department of Defense um, as they help veterans, you know, really look at all their different options. There's a transition um, program for them, and we um, are actually providing materials um, for um, folks leaving the military service. You know, how do you work with USDA? How do you get involved in agriculture? I actually went in and participated in a class at the Pentagon right here in the metro D.C. area um, talking about the, the services, the benefits, the incentives, the ways that USDA can help um, military personnel who are interested in a career in agriculture. So... Go ahead, Aaron. Well, I was just going to say, so I guess if, if I am a, um, coming, into, coming into civilian life and, and sitting in on one of these classes, can you spell out for me a little bit more about kind of the, the pitch? Like what, what am I hearing from you guys specifically? And, and are you focusing on certain types of agriculture? I mean, when we say agriculture, of course, it covers such a wide array of, of things. So I'm wondering... What, what are we kind of getting into um, as as a potential kind of veteran farmer? Well, you know, it's all over the board. It's like anyone thinking about a career in agriculture. It really is based on um, a lot of different kind of scenarios. Um, sometimes it's folks who know about agriculture. They might have grown up on a farm or ranch or around it in a small town, and they're wanting to know what, in, you know, what opportunities there are now. So we talk about the services that we have. We um, talk about many of the um, kind of focused incentives that were included in the last Farm Bill, the 2014 Farm Bill. So some things might have actually be, be a little different than they might have remembered if they had been around agriculture in the past. Some are going back to established operations, and they want to know, you know, what services are there, how they get involved, how do they access um, loans um, or monies, you know, to help them um, with equipment or other capital costs. Some are saying, hey, I don't know much about it. I, but I think I might be interested. I kind of have a passion for this. Um, we all know that our military personnel uh, really understand hard work. They understand um, having a job that's not nine to five, and that fits very nicely with agriculture. You know, it's interesting. A lot of them tell me, say, you know, I kind of want to own my own business. I've been taking orders for a long time, um, and that's exactly what a farm or ranch is. It's your own business. It's a small business in most cases. So um, there are a lot of things that kind of fit. There are others who have had different kinds of trauma, um, physical, mental, emotional. Um, they want to get on the land. Um, I know firsthand that the land heals a lot, and they they understand that, and they want to get out there and work with the land, work with the animals sometimes. We have folks who want to start small, um, want to grow um, vegetables and fruits and um, participate, um, you know, or maybe an organic farm or something small. Again, others want to work with livestock and want to get involved in that way. So what we want to say to anyone thinking about a career or just have an interest in agriculture that's in the military is that we do have um, incentives, we have programs, we have ways to um, help connect you 
um, to others in the private sector that um, can help you if you want to be an apprentice, if you just want to go somewhere and work for a while, so you figure things out for yourself. Um, you know, we have offices um, around the country, just about at every county. You can sit down with someone. We have a targeted part of our new website, just really dealing with some of the kind of focused areas that we have for veterans. We just want them to know they're not alone, um, that we're out there, we're here to help, um, and really kind of work through some of the questions and the issues that they might have if they're, if they're truly interested. So this seems like this connects to, you know, another broader issue for USDA, which is our the aging, the rising age, average age of our American farmers, which I believe now is over 58 years old right. and, and has actually been going up even since the last couple of uh, censuses, despite a really what we what we can even see here in an urban area is a really renewed interest in agriculture. Um, so can you talk about, I think you're, you're getting at this with, with what you want to accomplish for veterans, but also just more generally, what are some of the trends behind that? And how serious of an issue do you think it is in terms of our own national food security moving forward? Well, I think it really is, and you're right. The average age is late 50s of um, American farmer, and that continues to go up a little bit all the time. So everyone, you know, who thinks this is a serious issue, and, and USDA certainly does, um, know that we need to be concentrating on how do we recruit, how do we build that bench to create a pipeline for folks, you know, new folks to get involved in agriculture. Maybe it's veterans, maybe it's young people, maybe it's second careers, it's more women, it's folks from more socially disadvantaged communities who have not seen opportunity in agriculture. We at USDA really want to cast a wide net and really look and talk to folks um, in all walks of life about a career in agriculture and how rewarding it can be. We encourage folks to consider this. There are a number of incentives, and again, in the Farm Bill for new farmers and ranchers. Um, really, um, our microloan program is probably the workhorse. Um, it's through our Farm Service Agency, and it um, allows for anyone who has farmed 10 years or less a very streamlined process to access up to $50,000. And that can be used to purchase land or equipment or other capital costs. So we really want to make sure that we're talking um, – making information available. Um, programs like yours are helping get the word out. Um, sometimes it's someone in an urban area that has a passion but really doesn't know where to begin, um, doesn't know who's out there to help. We want to make sure we're making those connections. And um, I think that it's starting to resonate. We are definitely seeing an uptick in interest from our veterans, um, from young people, um, from more women, um, from you know some non-traditional um, folks getting involved in agriculture, so I think that we are making a difference, and um, we'll hope to see those numbers change a bit as we do the next census in a few years. So I'm curious, uh, in particular for the micro loan program, um, how do you make sure that someone is indeed a farmer? So like, if, you know, I live in Brooklyn now. I'm like, oh, great, fifty thousand dollars. I'm going to get that loan, and I'm going to move outside the city and start my own farm. Well, you know, there's certainly, you know, 
one of the key things I always say to everyone that farming is a business, and that's probably the the one thing that has to be thought about first if you're serious about agriculture. Certainly there are hobby farmers, but we're talking about somebody who really wants to try to make a living, who wants to maybe it's a second income but is very serious about what they're doing, and they, they know they need, they need a market. They need all the different issues. So we really encourage anyone interested in getting into farming or ranching, for that matter, to think of this as a business, and you need a business plan. You need a marketing plan. Um, there are tools online or on our website. There are other um, groups around the country who will sit down and will talk about your credit um, concerns, about getting financing to uh, operate um, a new farm. The equipment can be expensive. There's regulations you need to be aware of. There are tax issues. It's a lot. Um, all <laughs> it's the a lot. You, you know, you have yeah. when you're running a business. So, and if, if you go at it with thinking of like that, um, I think that's the first big decision. And how long do you think it, I mean, re- what is, I'm listening to that thinking that really is a lot like any important enterprise. And certainly if you want to dedicate your career to something you can expect um, to have to really reach for it. But what does it take, do you think, to go from kind of zero to 60? Like if somebody, if you're sitting out there today and you have some skills, but they might not be that farm specific, how, how what do you think you, you can realistically look toward to make a plan to actually become a farmer? I mean, was that a three-year plan? Is it a two-year plan? Like what's possible for people? Well, it, it really does vary. The first thing I would say is, go, is I would encourage folks to go to the USDA website. We just launched a new website. It's usda.gov slash new farmers. And it, it's an interactive website. It's not just a bunch of information, which is there and it's helpful. But there's also a discovery tool is what we call it, where you can plug in very critical information to help answer some of those questions you just asked me. You can in where you are. It asks if you own land or have access to land. Do you own equipment? Do you have any history in agriculture? What kind of agriculture are you interested in? Is it livestock? Is it produce? Is it organic? So you start narrowing down all these kind of critical questions that anyone who's thinking about agriculture really needs to know and think about. Or you can say, I don't know. Plug all that in, and you, what will happen is a list will come up that will send you to great resources to take the next steps. It may be to USDA. It may be to say, hey, make an appointment with a local in your local office, have an official, and here are the things you need to bring when you when you come in so you can get a, you know an early start on this. It may send you to a, another independent bank or farm credit system or extension. Uh, it may, you know, you know, it may say, "Hey, you need to go to a workshop and learn more because you really don't know much." Um, one thing that you know, it's so um, interesting in agriculture is there is no exact way to get into agriculture. There's no; it doesn't have to be perfect. It may be that there's someone that you know who has a farm who doesn't have heirs. You want to come back and farm? You can go as an apprentice and learn. Start from ground zero and learn from somebody well, hands on. What you about can, what about for folks? I guess there's this other kind of category of kind of quote unquote new farmers who maybe aren't traditionally new mm-hmm. in that they come from a farming family, they grew up on a farm, but they're not going to take over their family farm. You know, maybe there's multiple siblings, and and mm-hmm. the farm is going to one farm or the other. When we are looking at you know succession planning or supporting like new farmers who have a much more robust kind of history and resource network within the farming community, do you deal with that population in a different way? 
Well, I think they have a leg up a little bit because they know about agriculture and they kind of know what's required. They understand the business side, even if they can't go back into that family farm. But, you know, a lot of what we see is kids and grandkids, nieces and nephews coming back and say, I want to farm differently. I know I've got to add additional value for this farm to be able to support me. So we may have to, you know, broaden out. We have to branch out. We have to change what we're producing or the way we produce it to add some value or additional income. You see that over and over as well. So that's another sector that's very exciting. You know, one of the hurdles for a lot of kids coming out of college um, who want to farm and may have, a, you know, a farm to go back to or a ranch to go back to is, is student loans, the debt that so many kids, unfortunately, in our country um, are having to deal with when they come out of college. If they go to a corporation or a law firm or any kind of business, sometimes the, the fees are matched. They have, you know, regular income. They know what to expect. And in farming, it's not that regular. It's not that predictable. So many are deterred right now from getting involved um, in farming and ranching because they're coming out with school debt. That's something that we don't have good answers to right now, and I think it may be our tax um, programs we need to think about how do we um, have some relief um, for kids who want to get into farming but have that kind of debt. I don't have all the answers to that, but that's some of the kind of questions that we're, we're asking, um, looking for answers and looking for um, direction from young people who say, I love to farm, but I can't because of my college debt. So there's all sorts of different scenarios that we need to be thinking about as a society, as a culture. We talked in the beginning just a little bit about the 1% of our population that feeds the 99% of the rest of us. Most of us take it for granted. We're a food-independent country, um, and we can help actually help feed many others with our productivity. Um, we need to make sure that we are capturing that, keeping that, and encouraging um, the investment um, from our, our folks involved in agriculture. So a lot of different challenges, um, a lot more answers, I think, to come as more young people, different folks get involved in agriculture. And on that uh, new population or where some of the new energy is around food, I want to ask about, you know, a lot of what uh, we've seen is consolidation and industrialization in agriculture over the last several decades and whether or not you see a challenge in making farming more attractive for new farmers where some might see that agribusiness seems to have the upper hand or you know, is there an opportunity there in terms of what a lot of food industry is shifting to um, looking for, whether that's cage-free eggs or more sustainable products? Are there ways that USDA can support farmers in producing more of those kinds of things? Yeah, I think there's opportunity for all of the above. I think there's opportunity for anybody who has kind of a dream and a passion recognizes a business and wants to do something, I think, the public demand often is, you know, in any business in the U.S. kind of drives the trends of the time and pushes forward and actually will pay a premium in many cases um, for um, different types of production. Um, I think sometimes, you know, folks are wise to maybe start small, don't get, you know, too big and over your head too early. Make sure you can manage your debt. Make sure you can manage your production. You can learn and then grow and steadily grow to um, support yourself and your family. I see that often with very wisely people starting small but recognizing, hey, I need more than just this. But I think there's a lot of interest from um, the public with farmers markets, more regionally and locally produced food. Um, but, you know, I had a couple of farmers tell me actually in New York City at one of the markets there was, you know, we don't need more farmer's markets. We need more people shopping at farmer's markets. 
So I think that is something that we also need to think about as consumers is where we get our food from and making sure if you want it, you need to be supporting those farmers. A lot of us talk about it. It's not as convenient sometimes, so you don't do it. So I would encourage, you know, your listeners and the consuming public to really think about supporting um, these outlets instead of just having more farmers market. They're convenient, but making sure that we're also attracting our neighbors and our friends to purchase and create these markets um, for folks just getting involved in agriculture. Um, yes. I think there's, there's just so much opportunity potential opportunity, I should say, for and, farmers right now. And I think that is a project that uh, Heritage Radio Network is very much a part of. We're going to just take a short break now and come back and talk more about your own career and background and women in agriculture specifically. to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers in turn help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. Hello, I'm Alice Marcus Creek. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we're the ladies of We, we Dig, Dig Plants. Plants. And today we're asking you to dig deep into your pockets and help us grow this radio station and our podcast and everything that you know and love about us. How do you do it? You go to the heritageradionetwork.org website. You will see a beating heart. It's on every page. And you can give a dollar. You can give $5. You can give whatever. $500. $500. $5,000. Just click on the heart, donate, and help support the radio that you love. We're back on Eating Matters. We're talking today about the new faces of American agriculture with USDA Deputy Secretary Krista Hardin. And I wanted to shift to a topic that I know is near and dear to your own heart, which is women in American agriculture. We know that women are seriously underrepresented underrepresented currently as farmers making up somewhere, I think, around 14% of uh, principal owners of Mm -hmm. farms in in America. And I know you've been going around and talking to a lot of women who are involved in agriculture, and I'd love to hear what are you learning and what is is driving that? What do we need to do to have more representation of women in U.S. Well, I appreciate you bringing it up so much, and it's funny, no matter what the topic is that I'm asked to speak on where I'm around the country, I end up talking about women in agriculture. I just can't help it. Um, first of all, you know, women have been involved in agriculture probably since the beginning of time and certainly from our country. It's really about thinking about how do we recognize, how do we appreciate, how do we value their contributions. You're right about the number of principal owners, but that does not mean that there are not more and more and more many women involved um, in, and often as equal partners, but the way we've asked the questions, frankly, for decades has been, you know, one primary, one principal, and then secondary. And, you know, a lot of folks involved in agriculture are very traditional relationships. So the man is going to get be listed as the principal. We find that sometimes even with new farmers as well, where as long as granddad is alive and he may live in Arizona, 
because he's alive, he's going to be the, counted as a principal. So we're thinking about how we ask the questions at USDA when we do the census and we do questionnaires, making sure that we're really asking about who is doing the work and what level of work they're doing. Do you think there are implications of that undercounting um, that that impact women in the in the way that under other kinds of undervalued women's labor impact women negatively? Yeah, I think we just we're not asking the questions in a way, you know, just not intentionally trying to not appreciate what the women are doing. We just have asked the questions the same way and not really recognizing. Um, you know, my I know if you ask my parents who are farmers in Georgia who is the principal, it would be my daddy. But my mother has signed every single note at the bank. She's been very much involved in the decisions. She owned the land. She brought half the farm into the marriage from her own family. That's not valued. We haven't looked at her involvement in agriculture. Many women you know, do the marketing. They do the financial um, side of um, business planning. They buy the crop insurance. Often they're involved in the field, making decisions, involved in harvest and planning. It's just making sure that we're counting them and valuing their contributions. It's just one element. The other thing is getting young women involved in agriculture, um, coming out of college, thinking about careers, really from field to fork. Um, there's the science base, the research, veterinarians, um, also, that element of we need their voices in agriculture, we need their voices in education and communication and policy development. We need them to serve on boards and commissions and county committees. We need their voice. We need them in the field, on the ranches. We need them in the boardrooms. We need them helping to make decisions. I mean, I, I think that's, I really talk to young women. I go to college campuses. I talk to women's group. I talk to family groups to commodity organizations, general farm organizations, to everyone saying we need the diverse voice in agriculture and we, women is a great place to start. Yeah, well, I think, too, we're so lucky to have you in the USDA. I think you cannot, you know, that perspective of value that you bring to that organization and kind of in that same tone of perspective. I mean, your hometown, uh, you know, I was doing a little bit of, of research, you know, population 5,000, <laughs> um, you know, median income 23,000. Uh, the community was hit by two pretty serious tornadoes in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, really, you know, 60, 65% African American and, and, you know, Southern Georgia. Um, you know, one of the first lines in your bio is, is, you know, you call out the need for common sense policies and programs. Um, that expand opportunities in rural America. So I'm curious, when you go back home, what are you hearing from folks there, and, and what do you what are you answering to them? What, what are they asking you for, and what are you saying? Like, hey, I'm in this big deal position now, and this is what I can bring to the table. Well, you know, I'm not a big deal when I go home. You know how that is. <laughs> just, you know, um, I, I think I have a fancy title. Not everybody truly understands what I do. Uh, I know they're proud of me, um, but, you know, my parents and grandparents and just generations have been in that community. It's a great foundation, frankly, for this job because it is kind of the real world. You outlined it um, so well in your description, and um, it, it is, you know, I, th I think an example of what's happened in rural America across the country and how do we have jobs for our young people. And if you have one, you know, one um, – 
a family member who has a job, their spouse needs to have another, or you need good education, you need good health care. You know, it all fits together. Um, agriculture is clearly the backbone of my small town. We have a chicken processing plant. We have an ethanol plant. We have other, you know, related um, agribusinesses in our community which help with the tax base, help with, with better-paying jobs, help keep um, opportunity in that small town. When I go home, I talk about the same things that I talk about anywhere, about opportunity in agriculture and making sure that we can attract our young people to come back to farms. My sister and I are going to inherit our farm at some point. My parents are in the early 70s, and I hope it's a, a long time from now, frankly, but eventually we will. And neither one of us are probably going to be positioned to farm ourselves, at least we're not today. And I think a lot about the decisions we've got to make to keep that land in agriculture. Um, how do we attract a young family, a veteran, someone who looks different than I do, to be able to stay in Mitchell County, Georgia, and farm there? Um, I got to know, I mean, I've known this young woman's family, and I've gotten to know her. She came back to the farm right out of college and wants to farm with her father. And her parents were delighted but also kind of scared and, and kind of very surprised that she would go off to college, got a degree in natural resources, and then come back to this small town. They're wondering who she's going to date, you know, the kind of basic <laughs> things that you have to think about. And that face, you know, it's a real-world kind of questions that we really do have to think about for our young people when you say come back to this town of 5,000 that you grew up in make sure there is our opportunities there when you know when you as you talk about this i'm i'm thinking when you're thinking of her or other people from your hometown or the women that you've the women and, and everyone that you've met as you've gone around the country and you're trying to make the case uh in washington dc with the with congress people with uh the administration's leadership um you know, what do you want them to understand? What are the priorities? What are you holding in your mind that you're trying to communicate to people you think maybe don't understand agriculture in the same fundamental way that you do or have that personal connection to it? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind, and I do see the faces, frankly, and I hear the stories, and I try to be a good spokesperson and try to tell their stories for the, a lot of the young women in particular who, you know, have felt like they didn't have the support don't have the opportunities. I, first of all, I do talk about agriculture being a business, and we need to think about that. I think about how do we value people and their contributions, and how do we make sure they know we want them and we need them to be involved in this great industry, and making sure that we're sensitive to that and that we're talking and communicating in a way that includes them, that encourages them, that welcomes them. I'll tell you a quick story. We had a group here um, two years ago, just two years ago, um, young families coming from Florida, um, a young farmer group, and a couple of them have brought their young kids with them because it's very young um, families, you know, couples, and um, one of the dads or mothers, I can't remember, asked where was a changing room at USDA because um, the child needed to be changed. Our building's been here for decades. We have been in apartments since the Civil War. Not one of our public restrooms had a changing room. Wow. Just, and I, my, my chief of staff at the time was a young mother, and she just, like, 
come to my office, you can use my office, and came in here where we are located. It's just a different way of thinking. So it's being sensitive. It's really thinking through issues. Um, we want those young women and young families in our building talking about ag policy. We want them to be involved and be part of the dialogue. We also have to make them feel welcome. And that's just a simple kind of, you know, thing that you and him thought about maybe uh, a few years ago. But here's a young parent saying, I need a changing room, and we didn't even have one. We do now, by the way. We have several, and the men in the women's restroom on our main floor. It was just an indicator to me that we were a little bit of out of touch. Right. And um, I'm thinking... In our, in our clientele. Yeah, I mean, it's a great story. And I'm thinking of your all your county offices and yep. all, you know, all the other places that you were uh, pointing people to. And, and that hopefully that kind of change can trickle throughout uh, the agency. You know, and sometimes it, it's just because it's, it's just not... A, we're not aware. And we need to think differently. We need to make sure we are including. We're being sensitive. And once the light bulb goes on, I assure you, USDA wants to be there and will be there for all types of farmers and and ranchers. And with that, I think we will leave it there. That is uh, Deputy Secretary Krista Hardin, the United States Department of Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for your interest in what you're doing. We appreciate your time. And I want to thank Aaron and the Farm Report for making this a joint broadcast. Thank you. It was such a treat, uh, especially to be included in such a high-profile guest. Um, hang tight, folks. We're going to take one more break, and when we come back, we'll be on the line with Jim Van Houten of Van Houten Farms for our Escape Maker segment. We'll be right back. Escape. Escapemaker.com, a guide to local getaways, is offering a two-night farm escape that includes lodging, a visit to an apiary, wine tasting at a vineyard, and a special tour of Bobolink Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey. Transportation is included. For details, visit Escapemaker.com or come by the Bobolink Dairy stand at the new open-air Fulton Stall Market on Front Street in the South Street Seaport District. Located where New York City's public food markets began in the 1800s, Fulton Stall Market is open weekends 10 to 5 and is the first farmer's market in the city to offer ready-to-eat foods made by the farmers who produce them, along with a radio station, live music, and cooking workshops for families. Now offering organic vegetables, pizza made in a wood-burning oven using farm ingredients, local fruit preserves, yogurts and ice cream, and Bobolink Dairy's famous artisanal cheese and breads. The market is a great reason to rediscover the authentic seaport. For more information, visit FultonStallMarket.com. All right, and we are back. And of course, you know what time it is. Time for the Escape Maker segment. Today, we are joined on the line with by Jim Van Houten of Van Houten Farms. Welcome to the show, Jim. Well, thank you, Erin. Good to be here. So excited to talk with you about um, growing Christmas trees and all the other amazing work you guys do producing perennials and annuals and vegetables uh, for folks who are lucky enough to head your way um, over in New York State or find you down at the green markets here in New York City. 
Um, I know your family has been farming in the Northeast for many generations. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the planting of plants? Well, certainly, Eric. <laughs> certainly. Yes, uh, our family's been farming uh, in various modes for, you know, many, many, many generations. Uh, the current operation started with my father when he got out of the Army Air Corps in 1946, and he started a dairy farm and milking cows. Uh, when I was a young youngster, he was milking 60 cows here in Rockland County, which seems uh, impossible these days, uh, twice, uh, you know, twice a day. So as uh, growing up, they planted a garden. We started selling vegetables by the roadside, and we, and we, you know, uh, that, that seemed encouraging. So we increased that, and eventually sold the cows. So we sold the dairy farm, or not sold the dairy farm, but sold the dairy route. We also had a dairy route where we had our milk processed and delivered it door to door, and we concentrated on the vegetables. And so in, during the early 60s, mid-60s, we built our, our, you know, farm market. And right up into the late 70s, we were strictly a, a farm market here and, uh, you know, growing as, growing as the years went by. Uh, then we started uh, participating in the New York City Green Market Program in 1978, the year after it started in 1977. And we did many markets, many markets uh, for a couple of years. And then as time went on, we all got older and what have you, we, uh, we, cut, we uh, cut that down to just the Union Square market where we do Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And now once after Thanksgiving, we'll also be there Monday with our Christmas trees. So anyway, we morphed from a dairy farm into a vegetable farm. And from a vegetable farm, we also then started growing plants to plant. So if you grow tomato plants, you might as well grow marigold plants. And that's how we got into the plant business as well. So when folks say that farmers, you know, don't like to change or don't adapt with the times, uh, it sounds like you guys are proving them wrong. Do you feel like that's a norm in your area? Are oh, most farms dynamic yeah, like yours? Well, I, would, I would say that's a norm for any farm, any farm that is going to survive, or any group of farmers that will survive, uh, you do. You you change with. You have to. You have to. You know, take take the new technologies and use them, adapt them to the, your way of doing whatever. And um, and if you don't, you uh, you know, you you can't be. Uh, you know, you can't. You know, the buggy whip company can't be still making buggy buggy whips. So um, <laughs> not a big market for to, buggy you whips. Have to adapt. Yeah. You have to adapt. Well, so one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is kind of, you know, the providence of like where our food is coming from and kind of what works where. And when mm -hmm. you're growing plants for other people to grow, um, you know, is it important for us to buy these things kind of locally or regionally for reasons outside of supporting kind of like that economic and local chain? Are there like, are you growing different plants here than say they are in, you know, Washington State or South Dakota? Yeah. Well, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. Uh, but the, 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 you know, the, 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 the basic, the, the most important attribute of buying local plants is that, they haven't been bounced around and transported and kept at possibly inappropriate, uh, and, you know, temperatures or light or whatever. So I think most people now, you know, with, with the big box stores, the plants come from all over. 
And usually when they get there at the big box, uh, they're okay for a day or two, but they're not taken care of nearly as properly as, as you know, we independent you know, garden centers take care of them and what have you. But as far as growing plants locally, the less you can bounce a plant around, the better that plant is going to grow. And um, certain things, you know, need to be grown in certain environments, and, and other things are very adaptable and, you know, can, can take a, a wide fluctuation. But, I, you know, generally, if you can buy something local that has been produced local, you're going to get better results. And as far as, like, thinking about kind of growing zones moving across the country, I know zones are kind of, like, broken up uh, vertically across the country, but growing at a different latitude versus growing at a different mm-hmm. longitude, what do we need to be thinking about? Well, well, yeah, d- definitely. I mean, you know, we we grow a whole different mix of. I mean, just look at uh, just look at the farming operation alone. We grow a whole different uh, mix of, uh, of of varieties and types of vegetables than would be grown in southern Florida. Now, you might have the same. You know, we might grow tomatoes in our farm in Pennsylvania, and they grow tomatoes in Florida, but they grow different varieties that are more uh, adaptable to the heat and the humidity and, and everything else. So, and, so and, and other things just are very, very latitude-specific. I mean, you do not grow your uh, apples and your pears in South Florida, whereas we don't grow avocados in New York State. So, I mean, you know, that's just the obvious Right. So, I am sad uh, about that. I do wish avocados worked here because I do like them. Well, in the green market, <laughs> we constantly get asked, oh, do you have any bananas? Do you have any avocados? <laughs> oh, and, brother. You know, then you remind, you remind the person who asked that, that this is a farmer's market promoting locally grown, you know, locally grown produce. Yeah, those things are not here yet. Well, I know that one of the things, you know, your operation, in addition to kind of evolving over the years, you guys also change it up kind of season to season based on, I think, mm-hmm. probably what grows mm-hmm. well, but also what people are looking for. So coming into the end of the year and looking at the Christmas holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know you guys don't do cut your own trees, but maybe you can tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about um, kind of what it takes to to produce Christmas trees. Well, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of time for one thing. Uh, unlike uh, unlike uh, you know vegetables such as tomatoes and sweet corn, you don't you don't plant them in the early part of the year and harvest them in the later part of the year. Uh, most most Christmas tree varieties, minimum six to eight years before you start cutting, and then you cut usually for another four or five years depending on how you know how well things grow. And when we, uh, we, you know, we have a large farm out in uh, Columbia County, Pennsylvania, a little town called Orangeville, and we, we grew, we planted Christmas trees, started planting Christmas trees, oh, in the early to mid-80s, I would say. And we grew quite a few for quite a while. But, you know, my brother who runs, who that is his farm, and myself on this end, neither of us are getting any younger. So we had to, you know, curtail some of the operations someplace, and the Christmas tree was one area that we're cutting back on, uh, primarily because there are so many excellent, excellent independent tree growers right out near us in, in the Pennsylvania area. Right. Also, at times, there are excellent independent tree growers elsewhere as well. But right near us in Pennsylvania, we're, we're, you know, we have a number of tree growers that uh, help us out. 
So I want to get some pro tips as far as one of the things you mentioned, you know, earlier is the level of care that folks can expect when they're visiting a, a garden supply operation that that mm-hmm. is um, that's like your primary focus, essentially. So when we're thinking about uh, Christmas trees or 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 winter wreaths, um, what are your kind of like tips and techniques for helping those last throughout the holiday season? Well, uh, first of all, you know, everybody is very concerned about freshness of the greens. Now, <laughs> most of the greens, if they are cut, you know, be it the tree or be it the actual boughs of the tree out of which, you know, wreaths are made or the garland or the whatever, uh, if they are cut late enough in the season, the needles will be set on the tree. Uh, very often, most varieties of trees have to go through a couple frosts in order to set the needles. And sometimes, like even this past year, the, the year we're in right now, uh, we didn't have a frost until just a couple weeks ago. Uh, sometimes we have frost at the end of September. But um, So it's, it's important that the trees, number one, are not cut too early in the season, yet once it is appropriate time to cut trees, Unlike what a lot of people think, uh, a tree that is cut once the needles have set, and as long as it, ma- it maintains reasonable temperatures and it's not someplace where it's cooking in the sun or inside a trailer someplace heating up, if it's outdoors, uh, the tree will stay green. And I jokingly tell people they can put a tree outdoors and decorate it with shamrocks on March 17th if they like. <laughs> because most most trees, if they were cut appropriately in the beginning, uh, will last for not only weeks but months. And so many, you know, the some people have the feeling that the tree's got to be cut, you know, the week before, which really isn't the case as long as it wasn't cut too early in the season. So that's the question and, we should be asking. Right. So that's one thing people should ask for. And they also is just, you know, they just look at look at what they're buying and use common sense. I've seen a lot of over the, you know, in the in the past, a lot of Christmas wreaths that the the boughs were probably cut in late September and or mid-September and you know, the needles are dropping already, particularly in some of your mass distributors and what have you. So now you're always going to have a little bit of needle shed, no matter how fresh the tree. Uh-huh. So, you know, if people see a, a couple needles drop off, you know, that's expected. You know, I have a couple of hairs drop out of my head every day, but I plan <laughs> to be around for a long time. So, um, you know, you know, you just use common sense, just a lot of common sense and you'll be all right. Oh, man. Well, that is a relief. Well, Jim, thank you so much. I know if folks want to learn more about your business or come up for a visit, they can find you at www.vanhoutenfarmsny.com. Yes, yes, you can. And be sure. And if you, if, if, you know, I have no problem with you giving my email address out because our website doesn't have a whole inclusive, uh, uh, you know, uh, what to do and when to do it. But I have no problem communicating with people at all. So if you want to, you know, give my uh, you email address out, I have no yeah, problem Yeah, you with can that. give it out. Go ahead. Hello? You can go ahead. Hello? Yeah, what what the email is, just Jim at? Yes, J-I-M-A-T-V-H-F, as in Victor Harry Frank, at AOL.com. 
Awesome. Jim, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Well, you're very welcome. Anytime. Awesome. Take care. And thank okay. you. Thank Bye. you, um, as always, of course, to Escape Maker, who generously underwrite um, the Farm Report every week. Um, you can find them at escapemaker.com. Great ideas for uh, day trips in the New York metro area and really wonderful information on uh, Bavia Farms um, all over the place. Uh, they're also often at green markets where they're always giving away free apples, which I know as a market shopper around lunchtime, I am often very thankful for. So thanks, guys. We are, of course, in the midst of our end of year funding drive. If you believe in our programming, we need you to show it with a couple of bucks. Um, for just $5 a month, uh, you can become a sustaining member that's skipping maybe one cup of coffee over the course of the month, which is, I think, something we could probably... I'll find a little bit of space for, space for, and we would really appreciate here at the network. Definitely let them know that the Farm Report sent you. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening